As I mentioned earlier, this is the eighth and final week of our series, We Build People. And each week you've heard testimonies like that of what God is doing in the hearts, uh, in the lives of this congregation. And, uh, boy, isn't it good to know you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself? I just find excitement. Praise God. Praise God. I'm just so excited and grateful at what God is doing. This morning there's a word that God put on my heart. And, uh, I just want to start with one verse to let it be a springboard into what I believe the Lord wants to say to us. It's found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. If you have a Bible, we're going to go to some places in Scripture today. We encourage you to turn with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's some that are available there in the backs of the pews. And uh, we're going to put a lot of these verses up on the screen as well. But I want you to get this one verse in your heart. As I was thinking about how we want to end this series of messages we build people there's one just theme that resonates on the inside of my heart and i want you to catch this one point sermon today but let's first read the scripture this morning it says in romans 8 verse 31 what shall we say about these things or in response to all these things if god is for us Who can be against us? Can we say that last part together? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can I tell you, that is the confidence of the church moving forward. That's the confidence as we build people. It's this assurance that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to think about something. Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time as a man some 2,000 years ago with The sole purpose of spreading the gospel of salvation to the whole world. And in order to accomplish such a huge task, he spent most of his time investing it in 12 men. That tells me something about God's strategy. That the way to reach the world is by building people. He built 12 men for three years. And he turned them loose and they turned the world upside down with the gospel, Acts 17 says. And so I want to encourage you as we build people to know that we have a responsibility to do this together. And the good news is we don't do it alone. The good news is that if God is for us, who can be against us? Or we could say it like this. If God is for us, it doesn't really matter who's against us. See, the reality is most people believe in God. But there's few people that actually live like it. They believe he's real, but they don't actually live their lives as if he's real. There's a disconnect between their theology and their reality. They allow the circumstances that they face to get between them and God instead of allowing God to get between them and their circumstances. How many of you know there's a difference? If you really live like you believe that God is for you, you don't allow things to separate you from God. You allow God to separate you from the influence of those things. That's what coming to the house of God is all about this morning. We don't, we don't deny the issues that are going on in our lives. We don't live with our head in the clouds. No, we live with our heads looking to the clouds in expectation that a deliverer is coming, that God is for us, That he's already conquered death, hell, and the grave. That he's given us the victory. And so we don't have to let our circumstances separate us from our God. God wants to step in the midst. 
and separate us from our circumstances. You know, the Bible talks to us about a day that we'll all stand before God. And it doesn't say that on that day, God is going to say to you or to me, well said. He's not going to look at you and say, well planned or well thought. The Bible says that on that day, he's going to look at the children of God and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. When we talk about building people, you understand, build is a verb. We build people. It's an action. We do something. God wants to activate you. He wants to activate us to step out in faith this morning. Can I just tell you that faithfulness does not mean holding the fort. Faithfulness doesn't just mean biding time and waiting for God to come through. Faithfulness is not just avoiding evil. Faithfulness is doing good. You understand, if you live your whole Christian life trying to just avoid evil, you've only lived half a Christian life. It's not about just avoiding evil. It's about doing good. I want to show you another verse quickly in Titus chapter 2. And this is talking about Jesus. Verse 14 says this, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. But look at the last part. It says, eager to do what is good. Can I tell you, there's a lot of people that are living a Christian life only by the first half of that verse. They're they're living their Christian life. They believe that Jesus redeemed them from all wickedness and purified them for himself. And that's their goal, to avoid all wickedness and to be purified to Christ. But they miss the second half of the purpose of Jesus going to the cross for you and me. He did it so that we would be eager to do what is good. Can I just tell you this morning that goodness is not the absence of badness. God's called us to do good works. The truth is you can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. But when God called us to build the church, he called us to play offense. The Bible says from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. That sounds like offense to me. He's called us to play offense. And so we together build People And the confidence that we have in doing that is not in your, your talents, not in your wisdom or your, your scholarship of God's word, not in your upbringing. The confidence that we have is that if God is for us, who can be against us? So I just want to emphasize the we a little bit this morning in the we build people because God has something for you. He has something for us to do together and collectively. And tomorrow, this outreach that we've been talking about is just going to be a snapshot. It's going to be an illustrated sermon of how the body of Christ works. So we have dozens of people working together tomorrow evening, serving this community The people that come here from this community and surrounding areas, you know what they're going to see? They're going to see a testimony to what the kingdom of God is all about. They're not going to see one man on a platform leading. In fact, there's many of us wearing the same same t-shirt, just serving. The t-shirt says volunteer, really big, on the front. And it's about us working together to build the kingdom 
of God. Now, I want to tell you a couple of stories this morning in God's word out of the Old Testament. And the first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 14. So turn with me there if you have your Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of the backstory of what's happening here. And I'm giving you these stories for one purpose this morning. This is my point. I want you to know today simply this, that God is on our side. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Here's what's happening. Saul is the king of Israel. He has some 600 troops. And they're all sitting. The Bible says that Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. And they're waiting. They're stalling because they don't want to go to battle. Saul's army is outnumbered. The Philistines have an advantage strategically. So Saul is discouraged. Not only that, he's not properly armed. The Bible says that in all of Israel, they didn't have any weapons. The Philistines had gotten rid of all their blacksmiths, thinking they'll be able to make weapons with them. And so they actually had to go, and the farmers had to pay the Philistines to sharpen their 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 goads and their axes and their tools. And so in all of Israel, there's only two swords. Saul has one, and his son Jonathan has one. And so in this story... Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree, and he's stalling, so he doesn't have to face the enemy. But I love what happens in this story, and I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel 14, and we're going to read from verse 6. Jonathan, this is Saul's son, he says to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love, boy, God, if you would just give me some men and women like this armor bearer. Listen to this man's response in verse 7. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. You got to get the picture in your mind. They're already outnumbered with 600, but the 600 are still sitting at the bottom of the hill with Saul. So here's Jonathan. He's got one sword and a young armor bearer. And he says, let's go up and pick a fight with the enemy. And that young man says, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. Look at it with me. It says in verse 8, Jonathan said, come on then. We'll cross over toward them and let them see us. Isn't that a great military strategy? Like, here we are. It gets better. He says, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, then we will say, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, honestly, that's crazy. That's, that's, that's crazy. If God is not on your side. And he says, look, we're just going to show ourselves to him. We're going to just be sitting ducks. And if they say we're coming down, then we'll stay here. Now, what's funny is the more I read it, he didn't say that that'll be a sign that God's not going to give them to him. He just said, we'll stay here. They're coming down anyway. He's probably still going to fight them. But he said, but if they say, come on up here, we're going to climb up this steep embankment with two swords And we're going to take that as a sign that God's giving the enemy into our hands. So, verse 11. So, both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines. 
The Hebrews are crawling out of their holes where they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Oh, you know Jonathan's like, it's on. Did you hear that? He called me. He called me. He called me out. You heard that, right? I said if they call me out, God's going to give us the victory. He just called me out. And then it says, so Jonathan and his armor bearer said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan, verse 13, climbed up using his hands and his feet. This is a steep climb. With his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. Followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. What a story. And I just want to zoom in on verse 6. Verse 6, where Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Can we just say that together this morning? Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love the initiative of Jonathan in this moment. It says everything about the kind of man that he is and about the kind of leader that I want to be. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I mean, listen, when you walk by faith and not by sight, when you are convinced that God is for me, when you know that the steps of the righteous are ordered by God, you can step into that faith dimension where you live like this, where you say, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. When you understand that God is for me, you can step out in faith the same way that Abraham did. He packed up his kids, he packed up his wives, he packed up his camels, and he left to go to a land before God even told him where it was that he was going to be going. That's, that's walking by faith. It's the kind of faith that the priest had as they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant up to the Jordan River. And the Bible says they stepped into the waters of the Jordan at flood stage. They didn't wait for God to part the waters. They stepped in by faith. And as they stepped into the water, God parted the waters. That's what I'm talking about. Living with faith that knows that God is for me. It's the kind of faith that Peter had when he looked at Jesus as he's sitting on a storm-tossed vessel. And he says, Lord, if it's really you, call me to step onto the water and come to you. That's faith. That's a whole other level of confidence in God. Jonathan and his young armor bearer were outmanned ten to one. They only had two swords in all of Israel. As far as military strategy is concerned, it's terrible. They had the low ground. But he said, let's climb up there. Let's face them. And if things go south, there's no calling for backup. Nobody else has a sword to fight with. They are outmanned, they're outmatched, but they know that God is for them. And so he resolves, perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. Can I just tell you this morning that God is looking for people who will demonstrate that kind of faith. Because he wants to demonstrate that kind of faithfulness in your life. He, he wants, he wants 
to demonstrate his goodness amidst terrible odds. In fact, as you read through the Bible, you find something strange about God. He actually likes when the odds are stacked against us. He, he orchestrates it that way. You know, he, he allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to heat up the fiery furnace seven times hotter before he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. Why seven times hotter? Fire's fire. It burns. No, let's stack the odds. Gideon was outmatched with 10,000 soldiers. And God says, you know what? We probably need to let 9,700 of them go home. Yeah, 300. I like those odds better. And you know what, guys? Put your swords away. I want you to go to battle with torches and clay vessels. That's going to make for an stellar victory. God likes to stack the odds. When he tells uh, Joshua it's time to march around the walls of Jericho to defeat the city. How are we going to defeat the city? We're going to march. Okay, but then what? We're going to march again. Well, after we march around the city, what's the great plan of attack? We're going to march 13 times, once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day. And then what are we going to do? We're going to shout. And the walls fell down. How do you like those odds? Ten to one is no thing when God is on your side. See, the way I see it, you can spend your life sitting under a pomegranate tree like Saul and his 600 men. Or you can say, perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. And you can be like Jonathan and his armor bearer. And you can seize the moment. Listen to this verse, Second Chronicles. In fact, you may, you may want to find this in your Bible just so you can highlight it or underline it. Some of you, I know you're serious about your Bible because just using a pen is not enough. You got like color-coded Sharpies in your purse, but circle it, underline it, highlight it. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. Here's what it says, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. i got to read that again. I want you to get this picture in your mind. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed committed to him. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. If you've ever heard of that church, you've probably heard of their choir. They've won six Grammys. It's impressive. But what's more impressive than his choir is their Tuesday night prayer meeting. Every Tuesday night at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, some 3,000 people pack into their auditorium to do nothing but pray, to seek the face of God. But that wasn't always the story. When Jim first felt called to go to Brooklyn to pastor at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, the congregation had dwindled down to about 30 people. And he did anything and everything that he could do to try and to to turn the ship around, to try and to make it work. And he just couldn't make it work. There was no strategy. There was no planning. There was no programming that could turn that thing around. And he was distraught. He was frustrated. He was out of ideas. And that's when God met him and gave him a word as he was on a fishing boat off the coast of Florida. Here's the word that God spoke to Jim Cimbala. He said, if you and your wife 
will lead my people to pray and to call upon my name. You will never lack for something fresh to preach. I will supply all the money that's needed. And you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds that I will send. Now, in Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he wrote about this and he said these words. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. Something resonates with me when I hear that. I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. And so him and his wife, they went back to Brooklyn standing on a promise, one promise from God's word. I quoted it earlier out of Second Chronicles. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. They had one promise from God and they went back and they led that little congregation to seek the face of God in prayer. It was one of those, perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf moments in his life. He trusted God. I want to tell you this morning, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for someone that he can strengthen. His eyes this morning are looking throughout the Susquehanna River Valley for a church that he can strengthen. A body of believers that will step out in faith. God is looking for people that hearts are fully committed to him. Fully committed. Is that this church this morning? Fully committed to him. I don't want the eyes of the Lord to overlook me. When I, when I read that statement from Pastor Simbola, I just, I made it my own. I prayed it. As soon as I read it, it became a prayer. God, I despair at the thought that my life could slip away without seeing God work mightily on our behalf. And what's he doing right now? He's looking. He's looking for someone to work mightily on their behalf. He's looking to strengthen you. He's looking for someone who is fully committed to him. He strengthens those who climb the hills and conquer the enemies. Not those who sit under shade trees and wait for better odds. God doesn't need better odds this morning. He likes the odds that you're facing. It might be overwhelming for you, but God likes the odds. Impossible was removed from the dictionary the moment Jesus stepped out of the tomb. With God, nothing is impossible. Isn't that what the angel told Mary? After he had said, you're going to conceive a child of the Holy Spirit. How is this possible? With God, nothing is impossible. The Bible says, and I read it before, I want to say it again. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can be against us? Can I just tell you this morning, here's the math. You plus God equals a majority. Just remember that equation. The next time you feel overwhelmed. The next time you feel like it's not possible. The next time you feel like you you don't have what it takes or you don't measure up. You plus God equals a majority. Now I want to show you one more story this morning. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. It's to the right of 1 Samuel. 2 Chronicles 32 tells the story about how God shows himself mightily. On behalf of his people. 
And that's what I want God to do for us. So I want us to look at this little picture that happens in the life of King Hezekiah. And again, let me just lay the foundation for what is happening in Second Chronicles chapter 32. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And he's facing, he's facing an attack from King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, this is not some little squabble over borders. You need to understand that Assyria was one of the largest world empires in history. If it was in power today, it would have covered all of Iran, all of Iraq, all of Syria, all of the Jordan. And Sennacherib's grandfather had already overtaken Israel previously. And so now... He's breathing down the neck of the king of Judah, King Hezekiah. Now, we can't relate to being a king and having a national conflict. But here's what you can relate to out of this story. Every one of us knows exactly what it feels like to feel threatened that what is rightfully ours is going to be taken from us. We've all been there. We all know what it feels like to feel threatened by the enemy. To feel like what is rightfully ours is about to be taken. That's exactly what Hezekiah was feeling in this moment. That's exactly what the nation of Israel was feeling in this moment. And there's a couple of things that he did, that King Hezekiah did, that you need to remember this morning. Two things that he did. Number one, he worked hard. Number two, he prayed hard. In fact, just before 2 Chronicles 32, there's a one verse biography of king hezekiah it's the last verse of chapter 31 i want to read it to you it says in verse 21 of second chronicles 31 in everything that he undertook in the service of god's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands here's the two things he sought his god he prayed hard and he worked wholeheartedly he worked hard and then the results it says and so he prospered He prayed hard, and he worked hard, and he prospered. Now you move into chapter 32, and the Bible tells us he he understands this threat is coming, and so he begins to do some things. Verse 2 through 5 says that he had a a meeting with his military strategist. He did something very uh, critical and, and clever in that moment. They rerouted all the water into the city through underground aqueducts, and then they blocked all of the water outside of the city. He figured, why let the enemy have a a surplus of resources if they're going to be attacking us? So they blocked all the water. They routed the water through underground aqueducts into the city. And then the Bible goes on to talk about the work that he did. Look at verse 5. It begins with these words. Then he worked hard, repairing all the broken sections of the wall. And he built towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. Why am I emphasizing this? I'm emphasizing it for this reason. Because believing that God is on our side is not a cop-out for not doing work. Let me say that for these guys. Believing that God is on our side, is not a cop-out for not doing the work. Don't nudge your young adult, child. It's true. God is looking to respond to those who do 
the work. Those who's fully committed. That's what we read earlier. The eyes of the Lord are on those who are fully committed. Not those who are lazy or apathetic. Not those who are paralyzed in fear. Those who are putting their hands to the plow. Those who are committed to do the work and to not look back. Here's the reality. We need to work like it depends on us. And we need to pray like we know it depends on God. Work hard and pray hard. Look at verse 6 in the story. Verse 6 says, He appointed military officers over the people and he assembled them before him in the square of the city gate. And he encouraged them with these words. Verse 7. Now if you like to highlight things and underline things in your Bible, this is a verse you want to, you want to grab your attention about a year from now. Verse 7. He said to the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army that is with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And what happened for those people in that moment, I pray happens for you this morning. The next verse says, and the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had said to them. Listen, I don't know what your king of Assyria is this morning. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what you might be facing that's trying to steal from you what God promised is yours. But you need to hear this promise today. There is a greater power with us than with him. I want to just tell you, these are not words that Hezekiah came up with Because he looked over the wall of the city and saw the most dominant world empire taking up arms against him. You don't get that kind of word by looking at your circumstances. This is a word that comes from a man who spent time on his knees. He spent time praying. He spent time seeking the face of God. Yes, he did the work. But as the last verse in the previous chapter says, he sought the face of God. That's how you get this kind of perspective. He was convinced that God is fighting for us. What they're doing looks intimidating. It looks impossible. But it's only the arm of flesh. We have the righteous right arm of our good God. Flexing on our behalf. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. If God is for you this morning, church, who can be against you? The next verse, or look at verse 9. I'll just paraphrase it for you. We'll skip down to 18. What happened in the story is Sennacherib comes to Hezekiah outside of the wall and he begins to intimidate the people. He begins to try to intimidate the king. And and when that doesn't work, verse 18, it says, Then they called out in Hebrew. They wanted to make sure that all the, the locals understood the threats. They called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall. To terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. I just tell you, that's exactly what Satan does in the church. He, he comes against the leadership and he tries, he tries to bring fear. He tries to be intimidation. And, and if that doesn't work, he turns to the people. Just the same way that Sennacherib said, they went to them to try to instill fear in them in order to capture the city. That's why it's so important that we build people and that we are convinced that God is for us. 
Because the enemy loves to, to come in and to disrupt and to distract us from everything that God has called us to do. And can I just tell you this? You know, John Maxwell says this maxim. He says, everything rises and falls on leadership. And that's true. But good leadership demands good followership. The problem was not that Hezekiah didn't believe. The concern was, will the people believe? And so the enemy comes and he looks for someone whose faith is weak. He looks for someone that will doubt, for someone that will will let fear take root in their heart. Can I tell you, that's exactly what happened with Moses' generation. If you go back to Numbers chapter 14, and you look at the story that took place there, Moses had led the people of God miraculously with signs and wonders and miracles out of bondage in Egypt through the wilderness and he brought them to the very threshold of the promised land that God said was going to be theirs. He led them to that very place of victory. But it was when the 12 spies came back. You remember this story? Joshua sent, or Moses sent 12 spies to go in and to check out the land, to survey the land and come back and to give a report. Not to say whether it's possible or not. God had already said in chapter 13 of Numbers, I've given you the land. They were just supposed to go out and survey the situation. But they came back and 10 of those 12 spies had a negative report. They began to say how big the enemy is, how fortified their walls are, how impenetrable the city is, how impossible the task is going to be. And the Bible says the people began to grumble. They began to doubt. They began to to doubt the promise that God had said. In fact, the Bible says this in Numbers chapter 14, verse 3 and 4. This is what all the people were saying. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives, our children, they'll be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Can you imagine that? They were choosing in that moment to go back to 400 years of slavery, of bondage, of oppression, of borderline starvation. They said, we would rather go back to the security of what is known, even though it was bondage, than stepping into an unknown dimension where faith walks. God, God was so frustrated in that moment. In fact, the Bible says he was ready to kill him. Moses, the rest of chapter 14, Moses had to to switch gears. He had to become a prayer warrior. He had to start interceding for the people that God wouldn't kill them because he was so frustrated. God just said, you know what? I'm just going to start over. I'll I'll make you a nation. I'm going to start over with you. I can't use these people. But in the middle of all of that, Joshua and Caleb, they stand up and they say an Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.31. Here's what they said to the people in Rome in Numbers 14 and 8. They said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. You know what he was saying? If, If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, I know they're big. Yeah, I know the 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 cities are nice, but there are cities. God is for us, and if God is for us, He'll lead us into the land. Don't stand on the sidelines, 
Counting the odds. Don't sit under a shade tree waiting for a better opportunity. Step out in faith. The eyes of the Lord are ranging through the earth looking to give strength to somebody who's willing to stand up and go. But the people wouldn't do it in Moses' generation. They missed their moment. Finally, God said, okay, I won't kill them. But here's what I'm going to do. At the end of Numbers 14, verse 23, God said, not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath. To their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. That whole generation, they missed the miracle because they refused to be convinced that God was on their side. I despair at the thought that my life could slip away without seeing God work mightily. On our behalf. It could have happened to Hezekiah's generation. They could have missed it too. They had the opportunity. The enemy was throwing the same darts. Telling the same lies. Using the same tactics. The same strategies of intimidation. But the Bible says there was a different story in Hezekiah's generation. There in 2 Chronicles 32. It says in verse 20. King Hezekiah. Here's what he did when the accusations came. When Sennacherib's troops started, started threatening the people in their native language. The Bible says in verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 32, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. Skip down to verse 22. It says, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and he's not done yet, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Can I tell you the good news about God being on your side? When God's on your side, he's on every side. He doesn't just see the, the enemy that you're afraid of. He sees all the other enemies that, that are targeting you. He sees the enemy that's sneaking up behind you that you don't even know to ask God to help you with. When God is on your side, He covers you completely. And the Word says that He delivered them not only from the enemy that they could see, but from the enemies that they couldn't see. On every side, God was for them. And He's for you this morning. It was Abraham Lincoln that famously said, My concern is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on His side. Can I just tell you this morning, the question that Paul posed in Romans 8.31, If God be for us, who can be against us? He didn't leave any time for people to wonder if God was for them. In the very next verse, Romans 8.32, he said these words. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can I tell you, like no other place in human history, at the cross, God said, I'm for you. I'm for you. He's for you. God is on your side today. And you need to get that in your spirit. Because the enemy would love nothing more than for you to just sit and occupy time. 
Just waiting for better odds, waiting for better opportunity. But there are things that God has put in your spirit to do. There are things that He's gifted you for, made you capable of. There's things that He's called us to. It's we build people, not I build people. There's things that He's put in your spirit. And the enemy would love nothing more than to intimidate you or to get you to believe even for a moment that maybe God is not for me. Maybe God is not looking to strengthen me this morning. Maybe I might fail. Maybe I should go back to a much more familiar life that I once knew. Yes, it was a life of bondage. Yes, it was a life of addiction. Yes, it was a life where I couldn't find freedom, but at least I knew what to expect. Faith is risky. And what if God's not for me? You have to look no farther this morning than the cross where Jesus said, I'm for you. I'm for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish. He's for you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you. I I want you to know today that God, when I say he's for you, I don't just mean to help you through the struggles that you're facing today. I mean the heart of God is to be with you. You know, imagine if... Imagine a parent who tells their son who loves baseball, I'm proud of you. But that parent never goes outside and plays catch. Never shows up at a game to watch their kid play. I'm for you. Doesn't speak very loudly. But God demonstrated his love for you. He didn't just say I'm for you. He says I want to be with you. He reconciled us back to God. Back to himself. At the cross. At the cross, Jesus gave his life for you. He gave his life for me so that we could be with him. He wants to show up in your life. He wants to be with you so you know like you've never known before, God is for me. So listen, if you don't know him today, this is not just about being motivated. This is not some self-help speech. This is not so you have a little bit more motivation to face your Monday. Talking about eternity. Talking about God's plan for you from the beginning. The Bible says, before the foundation of the world was laid, He knew you. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Which means before you sinned, before you breathed, before your parents knew your name, God loved you and had a plan to be with you. If you don't know him today, I want to invite you to ask him into your heart. To pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I receive your offer of salvation. I believe that You dying on the cross paid the penalty for my sin. And that the only way I can be with God is to have the sin debt 
removed. And so I put my faith in what you did for me on Calvary. And I receive you as my Lord. This is a trade that I'm offering today. Your sin, your unrighteousness, your guilt, your shame. Given over to God. So that he can give you his righteousness. So that he can put you in right relationship with the Father. Would you bow your head with me right now? I'm not going to belabor this moment any longer. If you're here and you say, I don't know God personally. Maybe you know about God. Maybe you've heard some Bible stories, but you don't have a relationship with God. And you want to know today that He is for you. And that He is in you. He wants to come and live in your heart. But you need to say, God, I repent of my sins. And I receive you as my Lord. If that's you and you want to make that commitment today, would you just raise your hand right now? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We're praying. We're praying for you. In this moment, thank you. Praise God. You can put your hand back down after you've raised it up. Anyone else that would join these two and say, Today, today, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Anyone? Anyone? Praise God. Praise God for these that have raised their hand. Right now, I want to ask them to pray this prayer. Would you pray it with us, all of us? Let's pray this together. Say, Dear God, I believe you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin, to demonstrate your love for me. I receive that gift of love. I receive your offer of salvation. Today, God, I give you my life. Fully committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God.